So this past Wednesday, February 8th, students gathered for a routine chapel service at Asbury University. It's a small private Christian school in the sort of Wesleyan and Methodist tradition located about 30 miles outside Lexington, Kentucky. And now about 12 days later, most of those students are still there, along with thousands of others from across the globe. And what started simply as a service of singing and praying and a brief message is now being heralded as a full-blown revival. Students across the country are descending upon the chapel by the busloads. And I know there was a contingent from the BCM right here at the U of A that headed up there this week. All the major media outlets are there, national, even international And as of yesterday, the hashtag, Asbury Revival, had over 55 million views on TikTok. Right? There's nothing China can do to stop that. (laughs) Apparently, it's even spread to Samford University in Birmingham, to Cedarville University in Ohio, to Belmont in Nashville, and more. Now, whether or not you're a skeptic or a fanatic... It is clear that something is happening at Asbury University. Friends, how are we to make sense of such things? Right? Do we celebrate it or do we throw rocks at it? Right? Is this a bona fide work of the Spirit or is this just enthusiasm run amok? How do we know if what's happening is genuinely Christian or merely counterfeit? Well, that's the question many are asking, and friends, that's actually the question that we're going to be thinking about this morning from our study in the book of James, in the New Testament book of James. Let me invite you to turn there now. We're going to be in James 2 this morning, and if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, uh, you can provide, uh, we do provide them, red Bibles in the seat back before you. You can find our text on page 1012, page 1012. We're going to be in James 2, 14 through 26. Now, if you're just joining us, James is one of the the punchiest and most practical, and therefore it is, as we said, one of the most popular books in all the Bible, and yet also, as we're going to see this morning, it's one of the most controversial. And over the past few weeks, James's concern has been the nature of true religion, right? Not just, as Sam prayed, that we are hearers of the word, but that we are also doers of the word especially toward those who are most in need and most at risk, right? He talked about widows and orphans back in 127 and the poor in the assembly that we not show partiality against them, right, in 2, 1 to 13. But friends, what about the person who says, you know, hey, James, like, tone it down a bit, all right? Why don't you just relax for a minute, right? I've got faith. I'm good, Right, I made a decision, or I prayed a prayer, or I walked an aisle, or I got baptized. Right? I, was, I was a master at all those sword drills as a kid. You know, I've got the Romans road memorized, James. You know, you're a little too works-oriented. Too many imperatives in your preaching. What about all the glorious indicatives? What about just resting in Christ? How about the free grace of the gospel, James? All this talk about works is just wearing us down. Friends, how would James respond to that? And maybe you think that's a great question because maybe you're feeling a little that way after these past few weeks. Well, follow along as I read from James 2, beginning in verse 14. James writes, 
What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Well, friends, we've come to one of the most controversial passages in all of the Bible, certainly in the book of James, right? And it's particularly like verse 24. Look down there. James writes, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, right? There goes the Protestant Reformation, right there, right? That's why reformer Martin Luther called the book of James, right, an epistle of straw. He even said he was tempted to throw Jimmy in the stove, right? Burn the whole thing up. If you were in Colby's class on Luther, you know he was never one to mince words, right? For some of us, a text like this, the temptation is going to be to just to run past these verses, like pretend they're not in our Bible. Maybe there was a typo somewhere along the way, right? But for others among us, the temptation might be to, to turn a text like this into a theological debate, right? James versus the Apostle Paul, and there's this great theological throwdown, or maybe think about it merely as a historical debate, right? Protestants versus Catholics. But friends, what James wants us to see and what you need to see is this is, in fact, a deeply practical debate, and it has significant pastoral concern and implications. For at the heart of this text is the nature of true saving faith, right? What is genuine faith? What is authentic faith, right? Faith that truly saves. What is it? How do you know you have it? Right, so let's trace James's argument for just a moment. He opens in verse 14. And notice he opens with a question. The question is, what good is it? As in, what benefit is it? If someone right, claims to have faith, but they have no works. In other words, if they have little evidence to back up their own profession. And James asks, can that faith, meaning that faith without fruit, can, James says, can that faith, save. 
Right, that's end of James verse 14. That right there is the principal issue. Right? Everything hinges upon that question. Is faith without fruit saving faith? And that question is then followed by what? An illustration. So a church member is confronted with another church member and that member is in desperate need and the one who observe it, observes it is all talk, right? But no action. And that illustration is then followed by James's declaration, right? Verse 17, faith without works is dead. But someone raises what? An objection. Verse 18, James, hey, man, you're conflating works and faith, right? Works and faith, those are separate things. Some of us are great in faith. Others of us are great in works. Well, that's followed by James's refutation of that. Verses 19 and 20. And he's going to say what? Faith apart from works is useless. And then he's going to give two examples as confirmation, right? Pointing to Abraham and then to Rahab. And followed up with the conclusion there in verse 26. And that conclusion in 26 just repeats the declaration he made back in verse 17, right? Faith apart from works is dead. So again, follow the logic. There's the question. Can faith without works save? Then the illustration in order to prove the declaration. No, it can't. Then the objection. And then that's followed by James's refutation, the two biblical examples as confirmation, and then the grand conclusion. Again, faith without works is dead. It can't save. That's the logical flow of the text. And friends, I think James's main point is clear. Right? We may have lots of theological questions, but I think his main point, that's pretty obvious. Authentic faith is active faith, right? Authentic faith is active faith. Or you can even put it more simply, right? James's point is faith works, right? Faith works. And to illustrate it, what James does is he really puts before us three different types of faith. And the first two types he's going to put before us are counterfeit. And it's only the last one that is truly authentic, and those different types of faith are going to serve this morning as our three points. But I'm not giving you the outline in advance. I'm keeping you in suspense, right? You're going to have to listen in. But friends, this is why it matters. For James is presenting us with the genu genuinely terrifying reality that one can claim to have saving faith. And one can genuinely believe that they possess saving faith when in fact they lack saving faith. Now as we look at these three different types of faith, we need to be asking ourselves, which of these best describes me? Right? Do I have saving faith? Okay, so the first kind of faith James presents, we're going to call this sentimental faith. So the first kind of faith he's going to put before us, we're going to call that firstly sentimental faith. Sentimental faith. As in the kind of faith that loves Christian things. That thinks sweetly and thinks fondly of Jesus. Right? It's sentimental. It possesses all the appearances of righteousness just without any of the actions of righteousness. Right? So sentimental faith is, is wonderfully familiar right, with all the popular Christian hashtags. Right? They follow all the influencers. They know the right people to retweet. 
Their Pinterest board is is full of carefully cultivated scenes with their Bibles and the highlighter and the artisan coffee. And it may have spent 15 minutes setting it up and only five minutes reading, but hey, that's okay. Don't worry about those things. Point is, they're happy to, to promote, even to post about the Christian faith. It's the practicing part, right? That's where it gets tricky. And we find that in that illustration there in verse 15. Because there we're told that there's a brother or sister who's in need. Now, brother or sister is the Bible's way of referring to one as a Christian, right? They're, they're family. So these are not outsiders that no one knows. These are insiders. And we read they're basically naked and starving. It's tragic, right? Poorly clothed means at best they have an undergarment of sorts. They have little else. They're also obviously calorically challenged, right? They have just skin and bones. They're in desperate need. And when confronted with this clear need right before them, what's the response? Verse 16, go in peace, be warmed and filled. And maybe we can imagine them doing that with a kind of saccharine smile and a, and a wave of the hand, right, as they quickly pass by the person in need. Now, go in peace was just a common Old Testament biblical blessing. It might be somewhat akin to us saying, you know, God bless you or, or have a blessed day. Well, what's the problem with the response? Well, it's not the words themselves, right? Go in peace. That's not the problem. It's how that response is meant to serve as, a, as kind of religious cover for their lack of action. For they, whomever these people are that are are in front of this person in need, right? They're the ones whom God has put there to help the person who's in need. So if you see someone drowning and you have a life jacket, you don't just wave and smile and whistle on by. No, you throw them the life jacket. They're drowning. So what we have here is somewhat akin to like a, a kind of Christian virtue signaling. Right? They're, they're happy to, to talk all about the biblical blessing to the needy, and they may look and even feel righteous as they say, go in peace, but they do nothing to actually help the one in need that's right before them. You know, it'd be like tweeting support for Compassion International and yet showing no compassion to the needy child in the pew right behind you. And it may be that John picks this particular example, that he sets it up intentionally this way. For if you recall in the scripture reading that Lynn read to us early from Matthew 25, that parable, the sheep and the goats, right? What did we read? Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was what, Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me food. He goes on to say, I was naked And that word for naked is the same word used here for poorly clothed, right? I was naked and you clothed me. And then he goes on to say, now the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or naked and clothe you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. But Jesus responds to those on his left, the goats, and he says, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. And he goes on to write, Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked, etc., and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it, 
to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So I think James is is intentionally setting this up with a naked and hungry person because he wants them to have in mind that parable of Jesus. He wants to unsettle them. Or in the just simple words of 1 John 3.17, if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, but closes his eyes to his need, how can God's love reside in him? Right. The clear implication is it can't. You see, James isn't saying this is a matter of like mature faith versus less mature faith. Or this is like lukewarm faith and then you've got really lively faith. Right? This is not all on the spectrum, James is saying, of genuine faith, where some are just further along than others. No, he's saying this is the difference between authentic faith and counterfeit faith, which is why he closes so clearly in verse 17, and he says, so also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. So it's not that faith alone isn't enough. It's that faith without works is simply not genuine faith. So I ask you this morning, are you more interested in looking righteous or in living righteously? You know, so if you're one who loves to talk about the sanctity of human life, Do you do anything for those moms who are scared for their lives? You know, you who say you hate sex trafficking, do you then turn around and prostitute yourself before pornography? You know, you who want to hold the line on gender, would you cross that line if a transgendered person were to come and to gather with us? And would you approach them And would you dialogue in love with them? You who say you care about the homeless and the poor, do you ever give to the benevolence fund? Or physically provide for one of the many here who are in need? You know, you who love to talk about the widow and the orphan, when was the last time you visited one of our widows or widowers in their home? You who say you love missions over there, when was the last time, right, you shared the gospel here? 1 John 3.18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. All right, James isn't done though, right? There's sentimental faith. The kind of faith that has mastered the appearance of religion without any of the acts of religion. But there's a second kind of counterfeit faith that he mentions. There's sentimental faith. But then secondly, he's going to talk about Sunday school faith. All right, so we've got sentimental faith, and then secondly, we've got Sunday school faith. Because in verse 18, James presents an objection. He says, right, someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. So James is saying, in other words, right, hey, or this, this objector is saying, right, to James, hey, like, there are just different kinds of Christians out there, right? Every one of us, you know, we each got our own strengths, Right, you've got your doctrinal types over here, you know, and you've got your your practical types over here, and and the the one who's the 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 doctrinal one, right? Yeah, he excels in doctrine, and the practical one, he excels in practice. It's all action for him, right? You say tomato, I say tomato. James, what's the big deal? But 
To that, James says, hey, listen, there are no solely like head Christians and hand Christians. Those who know how to think rightly and simply a separate group of those who know how to act rightly. And to drive that home, right, that that bifurcation just is, is not faithful to, to the Bible. He says, verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well, even the demons believe and shudder. So like right there, James is throwing down the gauntlet, right? He is, if we hadn't think James had taken his gloves off, he has taken his gloves off now. Right? There was nothing more sacred to the Jewish people than the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? The Lord is one. He is one. Right? That is the passage that every faithful Israelite would be called to recite every day. Right? That was the cornerstone of their faith. You know, that was as central to Judaism as the Trinity is to Christianity. And you see these individuals, they had Sunday school faith. Right? They could quickly trot out a few verses. They knew the basic answers. They could check the box when it comes to doctrinal orthodoxy. Right, They could do that. But friends, to all of us who pride ourselves on our orthodoxy, to all of us who do that, James says, remember whom you share that orthodoxy with. He says, even demons have sound doctrine. So if you remember the opening of Mark's gospel, Jesus is right there in the synagogue in Capernaum, and he encounters a man with a demonic spirit. And that demonic spirit, if you remember, cries out, Mark 1.23, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That demon had perfectly orthodox doctrine. He knew exactly who Jesus was. He didn't need to be told and didn't need to be taught. He knew. He knew. And friends, that shouldn't surprise us, right? The demons came from heaven after all. They had God as their teacher. They know that God is one. And they know that Jesus is his son. And we say, right, there's that expression, there are no atheists in foxholes. Friends, there are no atheists among the demonic either. All right, so my, my professing Christian friend, to those of us who can be so proud of our own theological pedigree, James is saying, if theology is all we have, if theology is all we've got, James is like, congratulations, your Sunday school faith is no better than satanic faith. Friends, hell is full of good theology too. In, fa in fact, it's a place of flawless orthodoxy, right? They have graduated from the best schools. As we said, God was their teacher, but it doesn't mean they're saved. Because as we've seen, faith is more than just knowledge of the truth or assent to those truths like demons can do that. It's entrusting one's life to those truths and then following Jesus in them. Right? Profession alone, he's saying, can't save you. Right? All the theological degrees in the world can't save you. So you can know the right Bible answers. You can think this morning of Jesus as a good person. You can even profess Jesus to be the unique and only Son of God. But James is saying knowing that is not enough. It's not what we know. 
James says it's what we do with what we know that matters. Friends, I think this is just one reason why we shouldn't be too quick to baptize anyone who says that they've just become a Christian. And I mean baptize both like metaphorically and literally. For there are lots of ways, friends, to get people to respond to Jesus, right? To get them to to check a box or to sign a card or to, to pray something with you. And the reality is the younger they are, the easier it is to do that. So we were even talking this week on staff and with the residents about about a church that was offering to give away iPads to anyone who professed faith in Christ. Some of you are like, that sounds like a good deal. I get get saved again for that. When we look at the Gospels, we see what? There are thousands willing to flock to Jesus for what Jesus could give to them, right? For healing, perhaps. Right? They wanted something from him but they didn't want him. From when the miracles stopped flowing, right, they stopped following. Because mere profession isn't enough. Right? That Sunday school faith alone, he's saying, that's just satanic faith. The proof is seen, and whether or not that profession is practiced. So thus far, James has presented us with two different kinds of faith, right? The first has the pretense, and they've mastered the pretense of faith. The second has mastered that profession of faith. But he's saying none of those are actually genuine faith. James says both are counterfeits. And now he's going to turn to the real deal, right? The genuine article. And we move thirdly from sentimental faith and Sunday school faith to thirdly just simply saving faith. Right? Saving faith. Thirdly, saving faith. And what makes this faith different from the rest James says, you want to see verse 20? All right, I'll show you. And he begins by trotting out exhibit A, right? Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. You know, in Judaism, there was perhaps no one greater than Abraham. He was not just a man of faith, right? He was the man of faith, the paragon of faith. And if there's ever to be a debate, right, you want Abraham on your side, right? Abraham, it's like holding the trump card, right? If you've, if you've got him in your hand or got him in your back pocket, like you win every time. And James writes in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Right, and it's right there that we come to that most thorniest of all issues in James. Right, the, the passage that made reformer Martin Luther just like go red with rage. Right, the passage that seems to pit James and the Apostle Paul diametrically against and opposed to one another. And lest we think this was just like an accidental slip of the pen for James, he repeats it again even more. Firmly, in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Right? The, the tension, as, as we read that, if we know our Bibles at all, the tension is that Paul repeatedly seems to say the exact opposite in his letters. So Romans 3.28, listen to this. A person is justified by faith and not by works of the law. That's Paul. Romans 3.28, person is justified by faith, not by works of the law. And James is saying here, 2.24, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Right? And there we're like, there goes the Protestant Reformation, right? Flush the whole thing down the toilet. 
And this is why, right, this is why Luther called, like, Jimmy, you know, wanted to throw him in the stove, right? This is what gets Luther so upset. All right, at any rate, friends, is James hopelessly at odds with Paul? Now, stay with me because we're going to have to get a bit technical for just a moment. But recognize as you do, this is not a minor matter that James is dealing with. It's not like they're disagreeing over trivial things, right? What was Jesus' favorite breakfast cereal or something, right? That's not the question in the text. We're talking justification. We're talking about the very thing that Paul says makes us right with God and right eternally. In other words, we're talking about the very heart of Christianity, and it doesn't get any more serious than this. Now, the first thing that we need to note is that word justification actually has a pretty broad range of meaning, maybe broader than you would realize. So maybe as an example, if I say football, right, what do you think? Super Bowl, Chiefs, right, maybe the Cowboys, I'll boo you for that, but that's a different conversation, right? Maybe you think Sam Pittman, you know, grown men wearing tights and gesticulating in the end zones, or I don't know what you think, but you know what the sport is. But if I go and talk to the other six and a half billion people across the globe and use the word football, what do they think? Yeah, Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi, Manchester United. Sorry, Christian, I don't remember who your team is. Christian Dennett, right? Liverpool, he's saying. Um, yeah, we, the, the other six and a half billion people know football is that thing, that, that little circular ball you kick with your feet, right? Put it into a net, not a ball that you try to throw or kick through goalposts. Point being, same word, but who's using it and where it's being used matters because it can refer to two entirely different things. And so with justification, that word can mean and can refer to one's attempt to justify their own behavior. So for example, the lawyer who approaches Jesus in Luke 10 And he asks him how to inherit eternal life. And Jesus tells him, but he doesn't really like that. And so he gets a little cheeky. Remember what he says. And we read there that he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? And that's where we get the parable of the Good Samaritan. But notice he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to justify his lack of action. But it can also be used, this word justification, to refer to behavior that proves or vindicates someone. So, for example, Matthew eleven nineteen, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is, and here's our same word, justified by her deeds. As in, wisdom is shown to be right. Wisdom is finally vindicated by one's deeds. And friends, that's normally how Jesus uses the word. But we tend to be most familiar with how Paul uses the word. And it has nothing to do, right, with our behavior. It has everything to do with sort of legal courtroom language, right, of God declaring like a judge with a gavel, declaring one not guilty. Romans 3.23, Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified. Right, declared right by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Or Romans 3.30, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, you hear that again, 
who will what? Justify the circumcised by faith and justify the uncircumcised through faith. So the question we have to ask is whether or not James is using the word in the sense that Jesus usually uses the word, or is James using the word more like Paul usually uses the word? Well, okay, how do we do that? Well, let's look at James's argument. What does James say? He says, Abraham was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. So there, James is referring to that heart-wrenching scene in Genesis 22 where Abraham was to sacrifice his only son Isaac. And apart from how that must have run counter to every fatherly instinct in Abraham's own being, that command was entirely counterintuitive as well because God had promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation and that promise had come when they were barren and so all of God's promises hinged on Abraham having an heir and now he's supposed to kill that only heir, right? That makes no sense. It defies all nature, right? All reason and logic, Now, of course, God prevented it, right? God himself provided the sacrifice. But the point James is making is that Abraham's faith was so great, he was willing to do it anyway, which is why he says in verse 22, faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Now, that word completed just speaks to being brought to maturity, Right to become complete or perfect. So James is saying, Abraham's works brought his faith to its finished goal. Right, Abraham's works brought his faith to its finished and appropriate end. And thus, it proved what Scripture had earlier said of Abraham. Right, Genesis 15, 6. That's how James argues. He argues backwards. Right, that verse 23, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So his faith vindicated his faith, right? His, his works, his faith in God to do this very thing, to be willing to give up his son, vindicated the faith that had been accounted as righteousness. So James is saying the fruit of Abraham's life, Genesis 22, was evidenced in the faith of his heart, Genesis 15. So the fruit of his life, Genesis 22, evidenced the faith in his heart, Genesis 15. So it's clear from the way James is laying out his argument that he's using that word justify as in prove or vindicate the way Jesus typically used it and not the way Paul typically used it, right, as a declaration of faith. And friends, that shouldn't surprise us because who is James? He was the brother of Jesus. He was intimately acquainted with Jesus' own teachings. So James is saying that the righteousness that Abraham had already attained by faith was demonstrated in those deeds of faith. So we, we can't think that like James has all of a sudden just had this massive theological brain fart, if you'll pardon the expression, right? That's not what's happened to James when he's written this. Right? That's not what's happened. It's not that he just like, was, on a, was, was on a trip and decided to hit the Vatican and take a class on justification, and boom, here we are, right? That's not what's happening. 
nor is James trying to drag Paul into the octagon here and provoke a fight and have a, again, a knockdown drag out. That's also not what he's doing. Because what's fascinating is that both James and Paul at different points appeal to the same text, Genesis 15, 6, and they appeal to that same text to prove different things. So when Paul writes, what's he usually combating? He's usually combating these mistaken notions that we can earn our salvation by works. So that's the same thing Luther would combat in the Protestant Reformation, right? One man going toe-to-toe with the entire Catholic Church. But whereas Paul is usually dealing with a kind of works righteousness, here James has been dealing with an entirely different issue. James has been dealing what? Not with works righteousness, but sentimental faith. Right, the kind of faith that's been reduced to a mere hashtag. Or creedal faith, right? the kind of faith that's no more than a mere statement, Jesus is Lord. In other words, Paul is regularly fighting against legalism. James is fighting against easy believism. And those are two entirely different things. Right, so Paul, usually fighting against legalism, James usually fighting against easy believism, which is why Paul will refer to works or works of the law usually negatively, because he's dealing with those who are using those works as a means they think to merit their salvation. Whereas when James refers to works, as he does, I think, some 12 times in our passage, when he does it, he refers to works what? Not negatively, but positively. Why? Because they're the fruit of salvation. So don't think of James and Paul as going toe-to-toe. Think of James and Paul as actually back-to-back in the sense that they're confronting different problems, but they're fighting with the same theology, right? Paul is dealing with a wrong view of works, legalism. James is dealing with a wrong view of faith, easy believism. Friend, which ditch do you and do we tend to fall into, right? The legalism ditch or the easy believism ditch? Now, I think most of us outside the church, and this may come as a bit of a surprise, but I think most of us outside the church naturally think that we get to heaven by doing good things, right? By avoiding bad things, by cooperating, whatever that means sufficiently with God, whoever God is, right? He or she, whatever it might be. And we assume that if we've lived a decent life, at least if, so long as we've lived not a really bad life, Right? We're good with God. And if that's you, you need to hear Paul. Galatians 2.15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified, not declared right before God by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, declared right by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, right, by doing good things, no one will be justified, declared right before God. Right? There is, Paul is so clear, no amount of good works that can save you. Perhaps you noticed how in verse 23, James said, in believing God, what happened to Abraham? He became, what, a friend of God. Well, that begs the question, doesn't it? Well, if that made him a friend of God, what was he before that? Friend Abraham was an enemy of God. 
in our sin, every one of us are naturally born enemies of God. And the only way that we can be made right with God is by letting go of all our attempts at self-justification and self-righteousness and grasping firmly to Christ who is, we're told, our righteousness, our only righteousness. And here's the beautiful thing, right? The glorious thing is that James is saying this gift is available to all, to everyone, not just to the prominent, not just to the powerful like Abraham, but for the lowly and for the rejected, for the outcast like whom? Like Rahab, right? That's the other exhibit, exhibit B that he trots out, Rahab. Now, James is referencing there the the story in in Joshua 2 of of Israel sending out the spies to Jericho to kind of scout out the land before they cross the Jordan and try to take the promised land. And what does she do? She receives those spies. A Gentile prostitute, right? She receives those spies and at great personal risk and at great personal cost, right? She hides them and then helps them to escape. Right? And in that, right, a nobody in the eyes of the world became a somebody in the eyes of God. Because she didn't say, hey, you know what, Israelites, best of luck to you. You know, go in peace. No, she helped them in their need. Because grace isn't just available to patriarchs like Abraham, but right, prostitutes also like Rahab, Jew and Gentile. So if you can hear my voice this morning, I plead with you to trust in Christ's righteousness and not your own. Because there is not another righteousness that can make you right before God, no matter how hard you try. Only his blood, Christ's blood can cleanse you, and only his life can free you. Repent of your sins, trust in Christ. Like Abraham, like Rahab, you can become a friend of God. But others among us, I think especially those who maybe have who've grown up more in the church, right? Maybe especially in these parts, right? We fall into the other ditch. It's actually not the legalism ditch. It's more the easy believism ditch. And we think so long as we possess sentimental faith or so long as we possess, right, Sunday school faith, we've got a few verses on our belt, you know, under our belt like we're good with God. Now, what we do with our girlfriend or boyfriend, how hard we partied last night, how we treat our parents, how we bully our siblings, what we do with our money, how we spend our time, right? The things that come out of our mouth, the things we say behind other people's backs, we don't think a whole lot about that because we're like, Jesus took care of that, right? And I took care of that when I made that profession of faith years ago. But if that's... You, you don't need to hear Paul this morning. You actually need to hear James. We are saved by faith alone. Amen. Paul's clear. But James would say, yes, we're saved by faith alone, but never by the faith that is alone. Which means works never save. Yes. But they are always the evidence of one who has been saved. Which means if you have little love for God, Little obedience toward God, right? Little care about God's people, little care for God's church. James is saying, you may well not be a child of God. 
you may be deceived. For as Jesus says, it's the one who abides in me is what the one who obeys my commandments. Or as James simply says, faith without works is dead. But the wonderful news is that you too can become a child of God. It's the same for all, right? Patriarch or prostitute, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, by turning and trusting in Christ and then following Christ wherever he leads, right? Down that road that Paul will call what? The obedience of faith. Read Paul carefully. He doesn't disagree with James at all. Now, I read this morning that the crowds gathering at Asbury are larger than ever. Is revival breaking out? Are hundreds and thousands turning to Christ in faith? We should hope so. We should pray so. But how do we know? Well, the reality is we don't know, right? We're not there. Time will tell. And I love how one Christian put it this week. How do you tell if this really is a work of God? Well, it's not how high you jump. It's how straight you walk when you land. Right? That's what James would say. Because he recognizes there are different kinds of faith. Right? There's sentimental faith. The appearance of righteousness without any of the acts of righteousness. There's Sunday school faith, right? We got our few verses and we comfort ourselves that our doctrines sound even when our lives are not. And then Jem says there's true faith, saving faith, evidenced in a changed life. Exactly like you heard in those baptismal testimonies, right, that started the service. Authentic faith is active faith, where the fruit of our lives testifies to that faith in our hearts. So my friend, what kind of faith do you possess this morning? Is it counterfeit faith? Or is it authentic faith? Let's pray. Oh God, we give you praise that you give us texts like this. That when we're willing to look at them and to consider them carefully are not at odds with the rest of Scripture, but actually support and sustain what Scripture has to say. And yet even more than that, we don't just thank you that your word comes to us as a consistent, unified whole, but it comes to us as those who need to hear, to be challenged. Some of us need our minds awakened to the fact that we are not exercising genuine faith. And, oh God, we pray that those of us who possess it would possess it more fully, and those of us who do not will come to know it this morning in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.